You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. A week after the massacre at the offices of the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo, France is still coming to terms with last week's three days of violence that left 17 victims and three gunmen dead. 3.7 million people took part in unity marches across the country on Sunday, and security has been stepped up dramatically. But many questions remain unanswered. How did France's intelligence services fail to prevent attacks carried out by known violent extremists? Will France's Muslim community face a backlash? Can we expect further jihadi attacks in Western Europe? And does defending free speech demand that we publish offensive material out of solidarity with the dead cartoonists? To discuss all this, I'm joined from Paris by our correspondent Lara Marlowe and here in studio by Vincent Durack, who lectures in Middle East politics at University College Dublin and by the Irish Times foreign policy editor Patrick Smith. Lara, could you describe what the mood in Paris is like now? a week almost after these attacks? I think people are still a little bit numb, stunned, in shock. Uh, it's sad. Uh, the Paris seems a much sadder place than usual. usual. Uh, but there's also a streak of defiance. I mean, the very fact that they've managed to put together a magazine uh, uh, only a week after this massacre at Charlie Hebdo, uh, that they've again uh, put the Prophet Muhammad on the cover and that they've encrypted an obscene uh, drawing in this cover. I mean, it certainly shows that spirit of defiance. Uh, people are fearful. Um, they're afraid there will be more attacks, which there probably will be. Um, but at the same time, I think people are proud that France did something on Sunday, which I hear from neighbors and, and friends and people in the street, uh, which no other country could have done to mobilize nearly four million people to go into the streets. Uh, I saw a friend this morning who lives in a little village out to the west of Paris, and she said even in her tiny little village, there were people gathering in the squares, and she said all the little villages around her, there were there were places where uh, the population, um, for example, Damartin, where the Kouachi brothers were killed on Friday. Friday, the number of people who came to march there was more than the whole population of, of, of the town. Uh, so all of those things, very, very mixed feelings. Um, and at the same time, well, we'll, I think we'll talk about it a little bit later, but there are also undercurrents of, of unease, of fear uh, within the Muslim community, fear of persecution, uh, fear that they will be blamed, victimized, attacked, and also uh, a certain sympathy among some Muslims for the extremists who did these things. The first and the most immediate policy response of the French authorities has been this uh, deployment of extra security forces and the apparent introduction of more security measures. What are these measures that they have introduced or they're planning to introduce? Well, they have more than doubled uh, the number of police and army on the streets. I think the, the deployment will be completed by tomorrow. They're going to bring it up to 10,500 army uh, being deployed domestically in France, which is more than the total number of soldiers that France has overseas. This is the first time in the history of the country, at least that's what the defense minister says, that this has happened. Um, they're a very visible presence, especially in the metro, I find. Um, you see all different kinds of uniforms. It's hard to keep track between the red berries and the green camouflage and the you know, the different types of flak jackets and assault rifles and so on. I know there's legionnaires and in front of a 
synagogue in Marseille. There are paratroopers in front of a Jewish school uh, in the 11th arrondissement. Um, nearly half of these 10,500 army are being deployed to protect, protect Jewish sites, that is to say schools and synagogues. Um, they are also, well, at least Manuel Valls, the prime minister, says they will also protect uh, mosques and prayer rooms and, and Muslim uh, sites as well. They indeed have received uh, about 20 attacks since last, none lethal, but um, there have been shootings of mosques and little little bombs in Arab cafes, things like that, quite a few attacks on them. Um, the other thing is that I'm, I'm in the National Assembly at the moment where they're about to discuss, the Prime Minister is about to announce new security measures. One, which has already men- been mentioned at great length, is solitary confinement for Islamists in prison. Uh, the prisons are known to be the the place where many of these uh, Islamists are radicalized. Uh, Kouachi brothers, uh, well, Sharif Kouachi met uh, Ahmadi Koulibaly, his accomplice, in a French prison. Uh, and the people have long been aware that French prisons were a big problem, but nobody had really done anything about it till now. So that is their solution. Put them in solitary confinement. How they're going to find the extra cells to do this and the manpower in the prisons is another question. Can we, Lara, talk for a moment about these two communities that you mentioned, the Jewish community and the Muslim community? France is home to Europe's largest Jewish community and to Europe's largest Muslim community. How are each of these communities, how have they been impacted by the events of last week? Well, the Jewish community is about um, five or 600,000. It's the, the, as you say, they're both the biggest communities in Europe. Uh, the French Jews have been emigrating in huge numbers to Israel. I, I believe it was about 7,000 last year. They say it will be at least 9,000 this year. I ran into a group of Jewish students at the offices of Charlie Hebdo last Wednesday, just after the attack had taken place. Uh, one of the boys was wearing a, a skull cap. Uh, and they were very, very somber, and they said, we, we're not safe in France, we're, we're emigrating to Israel. Um, I also interviewed a, a Jewish man at the march on Sunday, and he said uh, he intends to stay here, he's French, uh, he was very defiant about it, and he said, if I do move one day to Israel, it will be because I want to, and not out of fear. Uh, the Muslim community uh, is very mixed. You have a certain number who are openly condemning the tax. You have, uh, I would say, the vast majority of French Muslims um, are, are not really practicing. They might fast during Ramadan, but they wouldn't do their prayers five times a day. And for those people, this is just a nightmare because they're, they're trying to integrate. Many of them believe in the values of the secular republic, and they're being regarded with suspicion. And there are a lot of intellectuals uh, who are demanding that they publicly denounce these attacks that were made in the in the name of Islam. And uh, as one uh, Muslim friend said to me, uh, they don't ask Jews or, or Christians to denounce the things that their people do. Why do they always demand that Muslims do this? Uh, and then there's a whole spectrum, and it goes to more, uh, well, slightly more radical Muslims who are upset by the, the Charlie uh, Hebdo uh, cartoons and say they shouldn't have been allowed to publish them, uh, who note that there are there is a double standard in France. Uh, Denet, the, the anti-Semitic comedian, he's been convicted several times of anti-Semitism. Uh, he's banned. Uh, the French authorities opened an investigation uh, into his um, whether or not he was apologizing for terrorism yesterday. Uh, and yet Charlie Hebdo is, is allowed 
to publish cartoons that deeply, deeply offend Muslims. So they're saying that this is, is a double standard. Uh, and then you go to a lot of schools in the suburbs, uh, poor immigrant suburbs, where students refuse to observe a, mo- a minute of silence uh, in homage to the, the dead journalist, and prisons where you had prisoners shouting through the bars, Allahu Akbar, at the very moment uh, during that minute of, of silence. Uh, and then you have thousands and thousands of Muslims who have um, used the hashtag I am Kulibali or I am Kuashi, uh, imitating, of course, the slogan, I am Charlie. Um, and some of these people have actually been prosecuted already for apology for terrorism. Vincent Jurek, what do we know about the affiliations of these uh, three gunmen? They appear to have separate affiliations, or at least one has separate one from the other two. Yeah, it's uh, slightly unusual in a sense um, in that... Uh, we know that one of the Kouachi brothers spent time, or at least we're told he did, uh, in Yemen, uh, which is home of uh, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which in turn is a radical Islamist organisation that has consistently sought to target uh, or to, to, to go for attacks in the West or to promote attacks on Western targets. Um, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was uh, responsible for the infamous shoe bomber, uh, Richard Reed's uh, attempt to bring down a plane. Um, and indeed, the House magazine, if you like, um, an English language online jihadist uh, magazine, Inspire, directly called for attacks on Charlie Hebdo um, and unnamed individuals. So there, the, both the linkage and the sort of ideological uh, basis, if you will, for, for involvement is reasonably clear. But on the other hand, um, it's uh, two of the three had some involvement in... Uh, purported involvement in a a ring which was uh, attempting to direct would-be jihadists to Syria and to the Islamic State. And the Islamic State has, by and large, while it has called in a sort of vague way for attacks on France, um, has concentrated all of its attention, so far as we know, on consolidating directly the territory under its control. And there is indeed, there's an ongoing debate in radical Islamist circles for at least 30 years now, uh, specifically about the near enemy and the far enemy, where you direct your priorities, whether you work to control and consolidate an Islamic state, a caliphate, whatever you will, in your immediate environments, which is why most radical Islamist activity has been uh, engaged upon within nation states, if you like, uh, within familiar boundaries, uh, albeit that Islamic state uh, straddles Iraq and Syria. And then the far enemy, and the far enemy, of course, uh, was attacked famously by al-Qaeda in in 2001. But this is an ongoing debate. So you have uh, aspects of both in these attacks, which is a little peculiar. Add to that the uh, rivalry, for want of a better word, between al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Al-Qaeda rejects the claim uh, of al-Baghdadi to be the the caliph, the leader of the global ummah. I mean, it's a preposterous claim anyway. But insofar as it matters within extremist Muslim circles, it is provocative and al-Qaeda still aspires to that global uh, role uh, which was accorded to it in, in, in some respects, um, both by some Muslims and indeed by some Western leaders, however misguided that might have been in the ways they responded. Islamic State has now become the the, the name organisation in these fringes. So the idea of a sort of an alliance between these two groups 
is unlikely. It, it, it may, of course, be simply instrumental. It may be simply that these guys wanted to be involved in some way and Yemen represented a possible route uh, and working with Islamic State also represented a, a possible route. And we may be overstating, I may be overstating the extent to which this is coherently or ideologically thought through. Lara Marlow, what are the French authorities saying about the level of coordination between the, uh, the, the various gunmen? Uh, well, Koulibaly said, said himself, he actually called the FM television from the, the kosher supermarket when he was in there with the hostages, and he said, we synchronized the beginning of our acts. Uh, they, both uh, Koulibaly and the Kouachi brothers had been close to a man called Jamal Badal, who, who had tried to blow up the American embassy in the 1990s. Um, and so they, they, there were links of friendship. Uh, Koulibaly's wife, uh, who was an Arab, uh, North African, from uh, Algerian origin, uh, Hayat Boumediam, had spoken something like 400 times uh, to the wife of Sharif Kouachi uh, on, on the telephone last year, the intelligence agency had that. So they were very, very close. And we've just found out today, actually, that um, the, the Kouachi brothers, uh, Sharif and Saeed, were in Yemen between 2009 and 2011, and they actually shared a room for a long time with the Nigerian who tried to bring down a, a flight to Detroit uh, with uh, explosives in his underwear. Uh, you remember the, the underbomber. So that, that strengthens what Vincent was saying about the, the Yemeni connection. Vincent, what uh, can we expect from now on? Are we likely to find more attacks in France? Is France a particular target? Or could we expect attacks elsewhere in Western Europe? Uh, I think we could expect attacks uh, elsewhere in Western Europe, but uh, but France is a particular target. France and the the UK um, uh, are particular targets. Uh, there are different bases, if you like, for the the, the targeting of specific countries, and uh, some of this has to do, in the case of France, particularly. Um, with a, with a, a colonial inheritance, with the fact that there are uh, several million uh, French North Africans. And as Lara says, we overstate it when we talk about uh, French Muslims because you, one simply can't make that judgment from afar. Um, the That in itself yields all sorts of unpleasant possibilities, as we've seen. Um, of course, as everybody has pointed out, the numbers are minuscule. The numbers are minuscule in terms of those travelling from France or the UK or indeed anywhere else in Europe. They, they number in the thousands, um, the number in the hundreds in, in terms of French people. And the numbers of those in turn who are likely to conduct any sort of attacks in France are, are presumably equally minuscule. But that's very little consolation when one considers the, the mayhem that can be uh, caused by one, two or three individuals, as we've seen. So these are difficult calculations. The colonial inheritance is one aspect of it. The, the presence of grievance on the part of those who've immigrated uh, to, to France, um, not all by anywhere means, but again, subsets of subsets. Um, the perception, rightly or wrongly, of France or the UK, for that matter, as, as, as an enemy country, as a country that has been party to attacks on uh, on Muslims, on, on the Muslim homeland or on the Ummah, wherever you may be talking about. And 
most immediately, of course, for those who see it as some sort of duty to travel to Iraq, Syria, then very clearly the Western countries that they are going to see as the enemy are those that are uh, actively promoting and indeed engaged upon attacks on Islamic State or other uh, jihadist organisations. And that, for the most part, is seen as France, the UK and the US. That's not to rule out the possibility that others might be targeted. And we've seen this happen in the past in in Spain. Um, It's highly speculative territory. This, of course, is not the first time that uh, cartoons lampooning the Prophet Muhammad have caused offence. Why do Muslims, or why why do so many Muslims, find these cartoons so offensive? There's a ban on representing the Prophet, and the the fundamentalist Muslims take this very, very seriously. And then you have to look at the sort of cartoons that Charlie Hebdo has published over the years. I mean, there was was one... A famous cartoon where the prophet has got his head in his hands and he says, it's really hard to be loved by idiots. And, and the word for idiots in French was, a, was a, an obscene word. Um, that was actually really insulting the followers of the prophet more than the prophet himself, but it was taken very badly. Um, there was another, a bomb in his turban and another one he's trying to hold back some would-be suicide bombers and saying, no, no, not yet. We've run out of virgins. Um, the last lawsuit uh, that was that was filed against them only a year ago was for a cover of Shani Abdo that said the Quran is and a word that starts in SH uh, because it doesn't protect you from bullets. Um, and Muslims, um, you know, you you may not think it's all very serious, and certainly the the, the um, cartoonist at Charlie Hebdo thought it was funny and humorous. But Muslims took this very very badly. They were very offended by this. Uh, Vincent Jurek, has this uh, uh, offensiveness of these or perceived offensiveness of these cartoons increased in recent years? Have people been more inclined to take offence at images of the Prophet, or has this simply uh, always been the case, and there are just more of them happening now? I think there may be something in both of those points. I, I, I think they, they, they as, as Lara has pointed out, there is a consistent um, line running through Muslim tradition that you don't firstly represent human beings and secondly represent uh, Muhammad. And that in turn is of a piece with a, a core tenet of Islam to do with idolatry, to do with the worship of, of false gods. Um, so anything, the central, absolutely abiding um, tenet of Islam is that of the, the unity of God. There is one God. It's part of the profession of, of faith. Um, and even though Muhammad may be the very perfection of, of humankind, nonetheless representing any man, uh, if you'll pardon the language, um, runs the risk of idolatry, runs the risk of, of erecting a, a sort of a, a rival to, to God. That offence at the, the representation of uh, the, the prophet is something that's consistent. But I think you might argue that in the course of the past 20, 30 years, uh, or perhaps even more recently, uh, the the sensitivity particularly of Muslims in the West to these sorts of uh, representations is is heightened. And that in turn is, is a function of uh, social and economic and political circumstances as much as it is of, of religion. Patty Smith, uh, this uh, is the latest, this attack on Charlie Hebdo is the latest in a succession of events which included obviously the uh, the persecution and the murder in some cases of uh, people involved in publishing uh, 
cartoons in Denmark. And then previously, the Salman Rushdie case uh, some years ago when uh, he was issued with, uh, with a death threat on the basis of a novel that he published, The Satanic Verses. Where, uh, where does this debate divide people in Western Europe and in the United States? Well, I mean, I think I think you start from the unanimity uh, about the the right of uh, publications to publish this material, and the, the, there's a, a very broad and deep consensus that what people have called the right to offend is in, inherent to and, and crucial to to the right to freedom of, of the press. And people make the point that freedom of the press and freedom of speech is of no value at all unless it's the freedom to say things which you disagree with because uh, nobody's going to try and s- suppress things which which, which uh, you ag- agree with. And and so the, the fundamental issue is that this is a core uh, uh, Western value in, in, in democratic societies. The divisions begin to open up, though, about the tactics to be used to defend that right. And the um, idea put fo- put forward first uh, after Rushdie was was, was uh, had fatwas issued against him, but more recently in relation to the Danish cartoons, that the only way to show solidarity is to republish uh, cartoons. Uh, this is and this is problematic uh, for for a lot of journalists and for a lot of media, uh, including I have to say the uh, the Irish Times, which has refused to go down that road. Um, For reasons that are not to do, as some of its opponents suggest, with uh, fear that the the paper would be attacked, um, but are to do with the fact that if you uh, regard uh, these uh, as offensive, uh, then it's not a question of, of not defending the right to publish them, but that you wouldn't publish them yourself because you're contributing uh, to uh, an offence. And there's no point in, in mending one problem by making another one and, and contributing to deepening. Uh, the so that there is no the obligation to offend in defence of the right to offend. Oh, precisely. And, and so uh, the, there are other ways to defend the right of, of such publications to publish. Uh, I'm delighted to see, for example, that the, the, the French government has coughed up a million euros to keep uh, Charlie Hebdo on, it, on, on its feet. Uh, but that doesn't the counter argument yeah. to what you're saying, though, Paddy, is that uh, actually uh, to counteract the climate of fear in which people are operating, that actually uh, that we should overcome our reluctance to publish offensive material because it's not really about the offensiveness of material. It's about uh, provi- offering solidarity and creating an atmosphere of security because there are so many of us who are publishing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I remember, by, by the way, when uh, Salman Rushdie was in Ireland, uh, a group of us brought him here in, in 1993 and we threw a party before he, he left. This was all heavily guarded by the police and, and all the rest. And Rushdie spent his time at the party going around sticking badges on people saying, I am, that said, I am Salman Rushdie. So the tactic of je suis, uh, je suis Charlie is, is, not, uh, is not new and, and it's quite understandable and it's quite appealing. It's, but but the, the issue is, is who are you trying to reach in your campaign? If, if you're trying to reach the majority of the Muslim community uh, and persuade them of, of the need to support democratic values, do you do it best by offering them yet another insult and slapping them in the face again and saying, by the way, you have to support us because this is our, this is our value? And or, or do you say, well, actually, we would like to promote 
civilized discourse. We would like to pr pr promote politeness. That that is a value of 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 a free and responsible media. Though it's not it's not a thing that is very popular in this age of the internet, where civilized discourse is is certainly not highly valued. Lara, is this debate happening in France, or is everybody simply declaring that they are Charlie? Uh, I'd say certainly the people who are audible are saying, I am Charlie. Um, but as I, as I mentioned earlier, you have lycée students in the banlieue saying, why can Charlie insult Islam, but Dieudonné cannot insult Jews? Um, and then the common response one hears is, well, Charlie insulted everybody. They insulted Catholics and Jews as well. Um, but they had a very, very strong, you know, borderline Islamophobic and, and very, very, very critical of Islam. Uh, another thing that is pointed out is that there are, there are laws against hate speech. There are laws against Holocaust denial, for example. So it's not unprecedented uh, for governments to legislate against uh, certain limitations on freedom of expression. But none of those limitations uh, apply to what people say about Islam. And for, for a lot of Muslims, this just confirms the idea that they are second-class citizens, that they are discriminated against, that, that there is mass Islamophobia in, in the West, and that they are victims. Vincent, is that true, that actually uh, you, we don't get uh, demands that uh, we repeat insults to various other groups, uh, whether it's Christians or Jews or whoever, but, uh, or gay people or women or whatever, but that actually Muslims seem to be fair game and there's an enthusiasm for, uh, for repeating the insult over and over again? Um, well, I... <laughs> It's a difficult question to answer. Uh, certainly in this case, the, the insistence, um, and I think you know, Paddy has picked up on this, that to defend the right of Charlie Hebdo to publish the material that it published um, is equivalent to agreeing with it or condoning it, um, it seems peculiar to me. Um, and similarly, it seems, it seems peculiar that there is this... Uh, implicit claim running through some of the commentary that uh, freedom of expression is unlimited and as, as Lara has pointed out it simply isn't it never has been it's not unlimited even in the United States you know the uh, famous Supreme Court judgment that nobody can shout fire in a crowded theatre um, places at least some limits and once you start to acknowledge that there are limits on freedom of speech much as we may not like it what you begin to talk about is a negotiation over what is permissible and what is not. And that then brings us back into the terrain of what one may or may not say about about religion. I Personally, I'm unsympathetic to any but the most stringent limitations, as I'm sure most of us are. But it does then leave open these questions about double standards in terms of uh, how different religions are represented. And it's uncomfortable almost you know, picking over the bones of these debates in relation to Charlie Hebdo, but certainly there seems to be some evidence of double standards in terms of the treatment of Islam as opposed to uh, Judaism, for instance. And one can fully understand all of the sensitivities in relation to how one represents uh, Judaism, particularly from a French perspective. But on the other hand, there is a great deal of evidence that indeed Islam and Muslims are fair game, that somehow being provocative uh, in relation to Islam uniquely uh, is uh, a fierce um, affirmation of the unlimited right to freedom of expression, an unlimited right which, as I, I say, I'm not entirely sure exists anywhere. So, Patty, if we don't uh, 
republish these cartoons. And if we don't publish the uh, front page of uh, Charlie Hebdo this week, how should we best express solidarity with the victims of these uh, of these gunmen? And also, how do we express our commitment to freedom of speech? I think we do it in the way that we do it on, 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 on other freedom of speech issues. We continue to write about uh, about the thing. We, we lobby on, on free speech, like we, we're uh, lobbying at the moment about for changes in the Defamation Act in Ireland, which is an important thing. But uh, uh, it isn't necessary to say that the, there is only one way of pro- protesting this issue. And uh, and um, in fact, it's it's a way that that we believe is is counterproductive. Uh, so there are there are other ways to to mobilise opinion. Uh, Lara Marlowe, there have been great expressions of unity in France in recent days, but uh, unity can't go on forever, and especially in the political environment. How is this going to play out politically, and particularly in view of the contest, the shadow contest for the presidency? Well, I, I think that in the short run, it has given François Hollande a, a tremendous boost. I mean, the, the two things that he's always been faulted for are a lack of decisiveness and a lack of com- compassion. You remember that uh, the former First Lady uh, accused him of, of mocking poor people. And he, he's really um, refuted both of those images during this crisis. He, uh, he just he ran out of the Elysee without his coat uh, on Wednesday, the 7th of January, when he heard about the attack. And he went straight to the scene of the massacre, uh, he he took the decision last Friday, and it cannot have been easy uh, to stage this double assault at the at the kosher supermarket and at the printing plant north of Paris at the same time, because they feared that the the extremists might be in contact with each other. And and in fact, the the fellow in the supermarket had said that if um, if the Kawashi brothers were, were killed, he would massacre all 15 of his hostages. So they were trying to avoid that. And that's why they did a simultaneous attack. So Hollande comes out of it very well. He's been praised effusively by all of the French newspapers. They're calling it a faultless performance. Uh, even Le Figaro, which never, ever had a good word to say about François Hollande. My hunch is that that will not last very long. I remember when um, Obama gave the order for the, the killing of bin Laden. Uh, he, he had a, a boost in the opinion polls, and I think it lasted about a week. And I, my guess is that Hollande's uh, new uh, approval will, will last just about as long. Uh, Nicolas Sarkozy is um, very much playing to the National Front electorate. You know the, the National Front has 25 or 30 percent of the electorate now. Uh, he's been very hardline. He, he spoke to the press yesterday, and he said, we must um, keep the Islamists in solitary confinement in prisons. And, and he says that these jihadis, these, uh, even the French citizens who are going in their thousands, uh, officially just over a thousand, but it's believed many more, are, are going to Syria to fight in the jihad with Islamic State. Uh, he says they must not be allowed back into France. If they do come into France, uh, they should go straight to prison. And, and the, moment, uh, that, uh, the, the moment that they return, they must be sent to prison. Uh, and then when they get out of prison, they must be deported immediately. He, he doesn't want them in France anymore at all. Uh, so Sarkozy is taking a very hard line. I think he's hoping to benefit from all this because, you know, he was interior minister before he was president, and um, he, he, he comes across very much as a hard liner on, on security issues. I think the long-term beneficiary of this will be Marine Le Pen. 
I mean, the National Front has always had this sort of trilogy, uh, this, this triangle, immigration equals Islam equals terrorism. And for Marine Le Pen, this is all of her prophecies coming true. Uh, this is the result of immigration. Uh, both Koulibaly and the Kouachi brothers were, were the children of immigrants. Uh, I, I think that Marine Le Pen will do very, very well. Um, in, I think the National Front will do very well in all of the coming elections. And presumably, uh, Sarkozy, no matter how hardline he gets, he can't compete with Marine Le Pen in that particular corner. So is there a danger for him that he's going to get squeezed between Le Pen and Hollande? Well, this is a mistake he made in 2012. He had an advisor called Patrick Bisson, who, who had come from the far right himself, and Sarkozy tried to, to capture that electorate. Um, it, it's hard to say. My hunch is that if, for example, in, in 2017, we had uh, François Hollande and Marine Le Pen uh, going to the runoff, I mean, the polls show that Marine Le Pen would beat François Hollande. And the reason I believe that would be the case is that the UMP voters no longer have this sort of taboo about voting for the for the National Front. So the, the right, the sort of mainstream right voters will vote for the far right. Whereas um, I think if it were, were you know, Sarkozy um, against Le Pen, the, a lot of socialist voters would, would never vote for Sarkozy, no matter what, and, and they would never vote for Le Pen either, so they will abstain. Um, so, you know, it, it, it can work... It could go either way, but I, I really do feel that Marine Le Pen will be the long-term beneficiary of this. Finally, Lara, have these events changed France, or what do they tell us about the state of France today? I think they tell us that when uh, things get really, really bad, uh, as they did on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of last week, the French realise what, what binds them is is stronger than what divides them. Uh, they, they, they remember who they are and what they are. I mean, it's stunning to see French people applauding policemen. Um, to see, I, I think it was Libération this morning, uh, one of the journalists said, I was amazed. I found myself smiling and greeting the, the gendarme downstairs this morning. Um, it's changed their attitude towards authority, at least for the moment. The security forces are, are quite popular right now because they're so, so deployed. Um, there was great pride taken in, in the successful march. Um, Voltaire's Treaty on Tolerance is actually one of the best-selling books at the moment, and it, many of these little makeshift altars outside Charlie Hebdo, outside the supermarkets, um, and even on, on the big squares like the Place de la République, uh, people are putting down little paperback volumes of Voltaire's uh, Treaty on Tolerance amid the flowers and, and the candles. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's, it's hardened... The, the distrust of Islam, I think the whole uh, discourse, which I, I've heard down through the years about uh, these poor Muslim immigrants who've been stuck in, the, in the, the get, virtually ghettos in the banlieue and who haven't been given equal, equal opportunity, um, that discourse is, is not heard at the moment. There's nobody saying we have to improve life for French Muslims so that they don't become terrorists. That, that is just not being said. Lara Marlowe, Vincent Durek, and Patrick Smith, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.